Hey good people, this is your NI Dom back with another reflection and this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So hey, racial reconciliation is my starting point. Racial reconciliation. And I want to be honest, I want to confess something. This is my, this is take two. I just recorded for 16 minutes, went into a rabbit hole that I have already fallen into a rabbit hole in the last two episodes and got off track. And I deleted it just because it's something that is, um, a, it's fresh and it keeps pulling me into this rabbit hole. So I deleted that. I'm going to start again. And if you hear me in being confused, like, did I say this already? That's because I just talked for 16 minutes and deleted that. <laughs> so it is possible that I'm going to be a little confused as to if I've said something in this version or the early the recording I deleted. All right. But racial reconciliation is something that has history for me. Uh, it is something that uh, has magnified as an issue. Um, racial um, harm, uh, racial confusion, racial alienation, um, a number of things have, have amplified and heightened in the last few months, but it is something that has had history with me, questions I've had, and I've had a, a, a way of navigating the world because I never, I never had the reckon, the reconciliation. So I navigated in the absence of that reconciliation. And in the last few months, with the amplification of some issues around race, I, I've not been able to navigate it. As a result, I've had to confront it, and it's been very difficult, very painful. But the beautiful thing of it is that I now have the reconciliation because I had to confront it. So I feel 90% resolved, about 90% resolved, and it is that. So that's what we're going to talk about in this. We're going to talk about in this uh, episode. And racial reconciliation may not be the best framing, but that's where I'm starting, okay? I'm going to do a little housekeeping on the other side of the disclaimers. Um, so wanted to let you know that. Um, okay, here we go. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ-8. Also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets around critical race feminism. And for me, that means I have an intellectual sensitivity two social constructions of power, particularly as related to race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. This project is unedited and is unscripted. To know more about it or me, please feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. All right. A little bit of housekeeping. We are at... Uh, the final two episodes, this one, and I have one more after this. 
and I am going to uh, do the third recording later this evening, which will show up as January 1st, just because this app, anything, any time I record after like 5 or 5.30, it counts it as the next day. Don't know why. And initially I was going to try to get it all recorded so that it could show up as December 31st, but I'm not going to do that. Like I'm, I did a recording this morning. Um, what is, what did I do this morning? Understanding the problem, which is good. And, um, I just, I took some time to breathe and, um, and, um, want to spend some time really, really, really looking at my, my goals for the new year and, uh, and I talked about it in a previous episode that I'm going to be doing some short story writing just to help me uh, clarify not just where I want to be next year, but how I want my second half of life to look or what I'm calling the third quarter. And so I believe that once I write that story, next year is going to have clarity. It's going to be clearer what I want next year to be because I, I see next year as the start of that thing. Um, so today I'm going to create some, a really good draft of some goals. And then next week when I write the story, I'll be able to modify those goals. So anyway, this is something I do every year. Um, so, um, so I said to you that this idea, this issue around racial reconciliation, it's something that I have, it's been an issue for a, for a long time, for a long time. And I have found ways of just navigating it. And honestly, I thought the way I was navigating it was the solution. But because... um Because there's there was some racial tension, conflict over the last few months, um, it created some heightened concern and even pain for me. That I had, and I couldn't navigate it the way I have been doing, and I had to confront it, and confronting it revealed some, made some uh, things clearer for me, and so. I'm really, really um, excited, actually, about the way I feel resolved. I feel about 90% good about it. And the only thing that's left is the so what. Like, what what am I going to do about this reconciliation? What is the action that I'm going to take? And maybe that'll come through this reflection. Uh, maybe it won't. I don't know. But regardless, I feel really good at how I'm looking at this issue uh, because of the the pain that I've experienced the last three months and the deep work I've had to do to confront it so that that pain uh, didn't overpower me. And, and I don't know if I said this in this recording or the one I deleted, <laughs> but um, I think we sometimes have these perfect storms in our life where there are multiple pathways of problems multiple problems that come together and create an opportunity for like real growth. And I was reading an article yesterday that talked about, um, and I might talk about that today, 
today, but it's called the Graves Model or Spiral Dynamics. And I've mentioned this a couple of times. It's just not something I study, so I don't talk about it. But sometimes I get into a pocket where I know that that theory will help me, and so I'll go and do some reading on it. I don't read about it a lot, only when I'm in a, a particular pocket. So um, because I'm thinking about this racial reconciliation, there's something about spiral dynamics or the Graves model is the same thing. Um, you got to go look that up, you guys, because I cannot help you. <laughs> this is a tough, it's just what I don't, I'm not, I don't have sophistication. And I'm not as knowledgeable about it. But as I was contending with this issue around racial reconciliation, that theory kept popping up in my head as as being relevant. So yesterday I was reading about it. And interestingly, this is probably my third or fourth time taking a look at this theory. And so yesterday when I was looking at, um, and I've tweeted out a couple of articles, your NIDOM one. So go to Twitter. So to take a look at the two, I think I tweeted two articles. But one dealt with the Graves model as it relates to the as organizational development. And that's very interesting to me because of the work that I'm doing right now. And so, hmm, so there was one. And then there's another article that talked about development and how people, um, and it's really not hierarchy, even, I don't know if it's linear. What I didn't know is that, I think I knew that you can circle back to an earlier stage of development. But I didn't know that it was like um, a circle, like you get to the highest place of development and then you go, you can circle back to the beginning. I don't know if I fully got that part. I need to keep reading because something about that makes sense and something about that doesn't make sense. So I don't have to keep reading about it, but that's relevant. But um, what this article said is that you can't, usually people don't jump levels in terms of development. So let's just say there are six, five levels. I don't remember how many levels there are and they're based on colors. Because it's not supposed to be sequential. It's not supposed to be hierarchical. I don't know. But there are, let's just say there are five levels. You don't go from a level one to a level four, or a level two to a level four, unless there's something life-changing or cataclysmic in your life that will force you to jump up a couple of levels. And, um, and I feel like Sometimes life gives us those, those perfect storms were, that require us to have cataclysmic growth, if I'm saying that word right. And I talked in the recording that I just deleted about um, being destabilized, you know, coming back after that, you know. I know how I got into that rabbit hole because I was talking and I do not want to fall into it again. But I was just talking about I feel really good, and that's scary to say, but I feel good about um, I feel good about um, kind of where I am right now. There are a lot of things I need to do. But I feel like I'm back. This this is how I feel. I feel like I'm back in the driver's seat. That for about four to five years, let's know. Yeah, for five years, I've been in the back seat. And I think in the last year, 
maybe a year and a half, I got in the the passenger seat in the front, but I haven't been driving the car. Not the way I'm wired to drive the car. Not the way I know to drive the car. And I feel like I'm in the driver's seat. And I, one of the things I've been thinking about over the past few days is like, You've got to have a contingency plan. So when life throws you another curveball, it doesn't take you to the back seat again. I know I use a lot of metaphors. I call it, I use a lot of metaphors, y'all. You know, but because I talked about the tunnel, I talked about liquefaction, and now I'm talking about, you know, being in the back seat. But all of that, just different ways of explaining this five year experience of just trying to get on my feet and trying to get back on my feet I've had to have I've had to prioritize things that are different from what I would normally prioritize it is what it is and I talked in the episode the recording that I deleted about and I've said this before I'm not putting all of that on my ex not at all there were things that I entered into that relationship making me prime that primed me for for falling apart that primed me for losing myself I didn't know it though I didn't know about those things I sure as hell know about them now (laughs) I do but anyway so I feel like I'm in the driver's seat and I feel really good about um so I feel real excited about driving again and I told you guys about two months ago that I woke up I had a weekend where I was like, I was seeing, I was doing goals. I'm a goals. That's what I do. I'm a visionary. I see things. I strategize. And for a while, the only goals I had were about getting on my feet. I was still using my INTJ-ness, but not really for advancement, but for survival. So I just have to strategize and just have, I just have to, um, uh, uh, dial up or become more sophisticated, more robust in terms of my ways of living. Just so, you know, you put shock, shock observers on a car, going to use another metaphor, and the car hits a bump, you have a certain, you have the right shock observers, <laughs> absorbers, absorbers. On the car, the car will bounce. It will glide over those bumps with ease. And that's what I need to make sure. I'm I'm positioned to handle bumps when they come. So anyway, there's that. So usually um, in the last five years, I haven't had the space to go deeper into some areas that have been unresolved. Number one, I've convinced myself that they didn't need to be resolved. But mostly, I've, when I have downtime, either I'm dealing with stress or I'm dealing with business. I'm dealing with goals. But this racial reconciliation project is just not a high priority until it became a high priority. So I don't know why I wanted to tell you all of that. But there it is. There's that. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Give me one second. Sometimes when I... I've said this to you guys before. When I I start going all around the block talking about all these other peripheral things, it's because I'm having a hard time 
entering into the reflection. So bear with me. All of the stuff I told you was in, was interesting, but I think I went there because I don't know how to get into the pocket of this reflection. So let's try. I um, was raised by two parents. That's not true. That's, let me start that over. Both of my parents were very vocal about what it means to be black in America. They had different ways of talking about it. But I grew up knowing that I was racialized. Now, of course, I didn't have the verbiage for that. I knew I was black. And I knew what it meant to be black in America. Now, there are things I know today that I did not know that my parents did not know. Either they didn't know or they didn't, they didn't know how to articulate it. Um, but they gave me my foundation as does, um, as do, as, as most parents, most people who have been racialized, black and brown in particular in the United States have some kind of family experience where they know about racism. Now, I watched this YouTube video a few days ago where it was a black woman, a biracial black woman, who was raised by a white mom who was very similar to a black mom in telling her daughter, listen, you're black in America. This is what it means. And the young lady can't be 25. Well, let me say this. She can't be 30. She's a young woman. And she's now rejecting a lot of the things that her white mom taught her about surviving as a racialized woman. So she's in this, in the, in like this, in a lecture hall, talking to these, a room full of white people about how the left, the Democratic Party has this thing all wrong. And that there's no, I don't know, systemic racism, structural racism doesn't exist. Black people aren't being criminalized because policies are created to criminalize black people. Black people are being criminalized because they're doing things that are criminal, according to this lady, this biracial black woman who identifies as a black woman, a biracial black woman, I think. That's important. I always try to respect how another person identifies. And I... I I wasn't even angry by the post. I'm pretty sure there would be some people who would be angry with her. I wasn't angry. She's entitled to her views. Anyway, I bring that up because I think one of the things she said in her video, in her, her presentation, is that when you grow up being taught about racism and that that people are racist against you and the world is against you, then that's how you look at the world. And, okay, this is what's interesting, though. Every, everything that we consider real as truth has been something that we learned 
It's all subjective. It's all constructed. It's all made up. So you can't just talk about one thing being made up. So if if this idea of racial harm, racial injustice, racial disadvantages, if that is a made up perceived construct, oh, then okay. I'm I'm mature enough and savvy enough, savvy enough. Let's put it on the table as a possibility. That's made up. And then we're going to have to put some other things on the table that's made up right alongside other things that are made up that we accept as truth. Um, and I'm not prepared to do that. So in this, in this particular reflection. So I was raised with, um, with that type of teaching. And so there's one thing. My dad, did a beautiful job of always. He also added sexism, which is really interesting because who he, who he was with women. But he talked about you got, you got two strikes against you. He would always say, You got two strikes against you. Oh my God. I miss him. But anyway, um, you're black and you're a woman. And those are two strikes. <laughs> and so my mom didn't talk about gender. She talked about surviving as a woman, particularly in an abusive relationship. Like, make sure you have your bank own money. You don't have to tell your husband how much money you have. You know, but that's about an extent. That's the extent of it. Um, so that's it. But they both talked to me about about race. Um, my mom pretty much approached it as black pride. Um, the needs of our community. But yeah, so I got that through both of them. So while I was exposed to these teachings around being black in America, I was also being educated in predominantly white spaces. This is really hard for me. And I don't think, for whatever reason, I don't know why I have not, I don't know why this is hard for me to reconcile. It's in my head that I went to predominantly white schools. There's a four-year period where I did, why do I not keep this in my brain? I don't know. There was a four-year period where I went to uh, a public school. Because I went to, uh, most of my schooling has been in, I've, I've had private education. Uh, the four years I went to public school, I still think that was predominantly white. If it wasn't predominantly white, it was a balance of black, white, Latin, Latinx, Asian. I mean, we were just, it was... It was mixed. And you know what? It probably was predominantly white because it was a university school. It was a special high school. And uh, one of these special programs and all that. So, yeah, there's that. And I don't even know if, I don't even know if it's as much, if it's as important to say, 
I was at a predominantly white schools or if I or if the fact that I went to private I had private education. Cause I think private education is different from public education. And I'm an educator. I can't ex- I've never really read about the difference between private and public. That's just never been a part of my work. My work has been in public education. I did spend two years as a private school teacher, but I was a private school teacher in a um, in a Catholic school that was serving low-income communities. So the whole focus was on, well, it was just work. So anyway, um, it feels very gross and elitist to say that I received a different kind of education. That's why I don't talk about it. That feels like, that feels gross. It feels elitist. And I skipped school a lot. <laughs> you know, when I, when I made it to the, uh, I started, I started, uh, exploring with skipping school in eighth grade. When I started going to school late, I found I could get away, found out I could get away with it. It was just a test. I was testing the water. I didn't have a consciousness of it. And I wasn't like, like half a day late, but I would go maybe 30, 45 minutes late to school. By the time I made it to high school, and I think I told you guys this, I experienced some bullying. And I had experienced some bullying a couple of times before. But I've told you guys this too, that it in those other cases, it didn't take long for the verbal bullying to turn into some kind of physical situation. And once it became physical, I was more able to defend myself. When it was verbal, I didn't know how to do it. I just didn't know how to defend myself verbally. I just didn't have that skill. So when those environments became physical, I fought back. And I was not messed with again in those spaces until my mom moved me into a different space for whatever reason. I didn't jump around schools a lot, but I did have a couple of neighborhood sh- neighborhood shifts because she went through the divorce and, you know, she, she, she was a, trying to make it as a single mom, single parent. So anywho, um, he's going to block me in. Oh, no, he's not. I'm sorry. <laughs> My sister's waiting for this park, and I'm like, oh, he's going to block me in. Okay, good. Okay, anyway, focus. Um, yeah, so I'm actually I'm actually talking through material that I have not processed before. So just bear with me. Um, so, uh, so I skipped school. So I made it to high school, and when the bullying started, because I didn't have the verbal skills, and because it wasn't physical, the solution was I just would skip that class. And as what happens in a space, that 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 bullying that happened in that classroom, the kids in that classroom would, were in other classes, and 
it never got to a place where I was uh, full out bullied. It just, that never happened. But there was a pocket of time where it was just difficult. High school was very scary. Then, I mean, I came from this Catholic school. You know, I don't look the part of a Catholic school girl. And I'm going to explain that. Not just because I'm black, which is one part of it. But because my mom was a, a, a single parent, my grandmother and my aunts and uncles were they helped in raising us. We spent a lot of time at Granny's house. Granny's house was in the hood. So I had exposure to the black community. I had a very, I had a strong black family, big family. I come from a large family. And all of the people in my family are very pro-black. I did not, I was not raised by people to, uh, I was never taught to not like, to, I was just black. I'm just black. That's just, that's never been a part of the possibility. And then I was spending a lot of time at granny's house, which was in the hood. So I knew about engaging with different socioeconomic um, groups. Uh so I, I say often I come from a, a lower socioeconomic background, which is true. My mom doesn't like that, but it is true. And I, I didn't realize that until I got to college, really until I got to grad school. And I started making friends with black people outside of my town. Oh, and I started and I got in, and I'm like, oh, because if you would have asked me when I was coming up, I would have said I was middle class. Because my living situation was different from my grandmother's, my friends in my grandmother's neighborhood, I didn't have that experience. I knew I could, t- I knew that there was a, a class difference. I was better off, if you will, if, if you could say that. But then there was a time when I was put into a, a suburban school. It was like I was there maybe a couple of months, and. It was in a, very, a town that's considered one of the wealthiest uh, uh, um, townships, if you will, in our state. And so we, my dad and my mom built a house there. And I went to school there for maybe two weeks. <laughs> I don't even think it was a couple of, I don't think it was more than a couple of months. And I really think it was like, two weeks but I don't my memory is fuzzy here I knew there was a class difference there as well and I did not have what those kids had but so my parents made a sacrifice to build the home in that in that town and even how and that's when once my parents built that house that's when my job's Dad's job became to be began to get unstable because it was told he had built his house and um, he he experienced employment instability. It it started after that. Otherwise, you know, my father was very smart. He was hardworking. 
And so he ended up having to live the rest of his life as an entrepreneur. I mean, uh, that's how he did it. So I had that moment. But most of my childhood was in the aftermath of that divorce. Um, and both of my parents came from really low income space. So what, this is why my mom doesn't like when I talk about being from a lower socioeconomic background, because both of them were very proud of what they were able to accomplish because of how they were raised, which is fair. So anyway, so I don't say I come from low income. I said lower. And I think that's, I think I, I have a consciousness of that because of who I'm now exposed to as a prof- as a degree professional. I hold several degrees. I have a professional occupation. I'm in spaces with other people who have those degrees, and I realize I didn't come from where you come from. <laughs> I did not have those resources. And, and I can tell you that several of my friends had a hardship or had a similar experience I had, except they had those shock absorbers on so that they never experienced a hardship because they had parents who could help them to give resources to them. I had two friends in two different look, one from my hometown and one from the South, that when they couldn't pay their when they couldn't pay their mortgage and they lost their house, their parents gave them a house. What? <laughs> what? It's not my reality. So anyway, um, this conversation around class does make a difference in this this racial conversation. I know it does. I don't know exactly how, but I'm, it's important for me to linger here. So anyway, grew up being taught about being black in America. I grew up in a family, a large family, an extended family, where blackness was, um, valued, respected, celebrated. I grew up in part of my, half of my time growing up in a, in the neighborhood with my grandmother. Um, where my exposure to other black people um, was just solidified. It wasn't just, I didn't just have exposure with my black family. I had black friends in my black neighborhood. And I went to predominantly white schools. Most of that was in a private space. And went to Catholic schools. And I think that matters. Not just that it was private, it was Catholic. <sighs> okay. I, so the first time I was questioned around my um, commitment, I don't even know what the word is. The first time I was questioned around my relationship to other black people was when I had to be um, 29, 28 or 29. My sister and I were roommates and my sister went to an HBCU 
um, historically black college. And uh, she had graduated. So some of her friends had come to visit us. Well, visit her. I was in the house. And um, all they saw me hanging out with were white, my white friends. Never thought about it because I had black friends. I had them. I have them. <laughs> I have them. <laughs> and, uh, but they weren't, the, my black friends weren't, they just weren't coming in and out of the house. So my sister's friends made a comment. Does your sister have any black friends? And I remember just laughing at that like, huh, I can see how this looks. My black friends are not coming out, coming in and out of this house. I had, we had, we, we had moved into a neighborhood that was close to a couple of my white friends and we were doing things in the neighborhood. So that's why those friends were visible. But I, it was the first time I had been questioned on that. Then I went to the South and I was in an all black, predominantly black district, school district I was teaching. And my, one of my counterparts, my teacher, my, yeah, counterparts, another teacher, he said, I can tell that you came, you come from a predominantly white space. And this is after we got close. I've told you guys this before. And I'm like, what? It was funny to me. He said, I can tell. I can tell how you maneuver. And again, I have always identified as pro-black. I don't use that language anymore. For Now I identify as pro-human. But for a long time, I identified as pro-black. So for him to say that to me, I was like, what? Well, what is it? And the way, I mean, he just said, I guess when there were whites, um, he could see me being able to engage with my white colleagues in a way that other people didn't engage them. So maybe, I don't know. And my, so my sister and I've had this talk and my sister being my sister, she also went to, um, her, her time had been in predominantly white schools, but we didn't go to, uh, we only went to one of the same schools and then we went to different high schools and then her, so we, I've had this conversation with some other African Americans who have been in predominantly white schools. I have had this conversation. I don't have, I don't know why this is this is something I would have to study but I reconcile it as when you grow up in a diverse space you know how to engage with different people I don't know if that's bad I don't know if that's bad but this is what I think and yeah I like diversity I don't particularly like, I do not like being in monocultural spaces. Monocultural white, monocultural black. I, I'm more tolerant of being in all black spaces than I am in all white spaces. That's a given. But I don't like it. And I, I remember, um, and I usually do things to balance it off. So if I'm in a, if I'm in an all black neighborhood and, all all black neighborhood and my job is all black then I'm gonna you're gonna more than likely find me in a church or a congregation that's predominantly white now my world is flipped 
I'm in a predominantly white neighborhood. I'm a predominantly white organization for work. And I'm just over church. Well, because in the, where I live, there aren't many black churches that are affirming of people of the LGBTQIA communities. And I'm no longer willing to sit into a, in a church and listen to a preacher talk in a disparaging way about people who are not heterosexual. I just, I'm not, I'm not into that. That's so far from my level of understanding about how the people should be treated that I I don't even wrestle with that. Not at all. So I went to, I think I told you guys recently, I went to, I went to my aunt's church and, um, and it comes up as a pretty consistent theme in Um, black churches that I've visited in my hometown. Now, there might be some reasons for that. Um, that's what's going on in my head right now. Like, hmm, is there a different theory that I should consider? But anyway, sure enough, I'm sitting there and, and she brings up, it comes up. Now, it doesn't come up in a hostile way as I've heard her preach about people who are non, non-straight people, if you will. But there it was. And I'm like, man, there are so many other things to talk about. And I feel the same way about how we talk to people who have uh, substance abuse. And I'm not putting uh, queer people on the same level as a, as it's not, it's not on par with having a substance abuse. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is how religion defines what is good and what is not good. That's what I'm talking about. And in both cases, what is good is based on a very limited worldview. And it's really been if it's from a perspective of centering yourself as the upright human and then everybody else is problematized. But that's not this that's not the purpose of this reflection. So I don't, I just don't end up being in black churches since I've been back home in my hometown. Now I can go to other cities, go to black churches and find that kind of diversity where like intellectual diversity, but I haven't been able to find it in my hometown. Mm -mm, Not at all. And I'm, nope, have not been able to. Mm -mm, And that bothers me deeply. But anyway, so, um, yeah, so I try to I try to diversify my experiences. I and I think I was reading an article about how INTJs love to be stimulated and we like to grow. And I love learning from other cultures. Oh, how do you do that? What are your experiences? What have you What have you been exposed to? What do you know? I love it. So that's what drives my appetite for diversity. It's really an intellectual appetite. Okay. And it's not about, oh, I, anyway, but I feel that that value for diversity isn't really shared. And I I always tell you guys, I come from a hyper segregated town. So 
no one is going to look at my not being in black space as, oh, she likes diversity. They can interpret that. Oh, she likes to be around white people. That's not true. But it's not, I don't hate being around white people. That's not, that didn't come out right. <laughs> but it's not because I privilege white people. That's not, I don't privilege white people. I do privilege diversity. I do privilege that. And so I typically move around. Now, I've been in the in the last two years. I've been in a mono, well, not the last two years. In the last five years, my work has centered me in a lot of monocultural spaces, monocultural white spaces, and that I'm assuming I'm attributing that to my degree attainment and my occupation. Now, I have a friend of mine. I've told you guys who went. To Florida and she's teaching at a black university and I think that that's something I would do but there you hear me talking about retirement and my my line of work my line of work situates me with some with a pedagogical style that is is compatible to my region where I live in the state I live in plus my licensing and so it just situates me in predominantly white spaces. And it's gross. It is gross. And it's something that, as I'm listening to myself talk right now, I'm like, are you trying to overcompensate? Like, what is that? What are you, why are you, it's almost like I'm apologizing. And Why? Like, why? So that's what I'm saying. I still have some work to do, but I can feel it. It's as though I am responsible. There it is. I'm responsible for segregation. And because I'm responsible for segregation, I need to fix that. That's gross. I don't, it's really gross. And I want to spend some time thinking more about this. Because I feel like it is my job. And what's interesting, and, and, and this is the this is the tension point. I'm, I'm, I, I ended up being here. I thought I was going to tell you guys another story. I was going to talk about the pain point from the last few months, but I don't even know if that's as relevant now. Because I think I've just identified the real tension for me. Because I was raised to be aware of being black in America. I was raised for being to be pro-black. And that raising, those teachings, put me at put me at odds with being in predominantly white space. That's what it is. Because when I look at other black people in those white spaces, they don't wrestle the way I do. Now, the people who were raised like I was raised, they're not in those white spaces. I can tell when we start talking. And this, this is what puts me at odds with other, I'm going to say black people. Black people in predominantly white spaces, not always, but about. I have experienced in the last five years that when I'm in a predominantly white space for work, and I'm encountering another black person at this particular level of work. This did not happen when I was a teacher. 
Yes, it did. It did. I'm, it did. Wow, I'm just, just going to rewrite history. It absolutely did. But I navigated it. I'll have to come back to that. So it's not about occupational level. I thought it was. It's not. When I'm in white, predominantly white spaces and I encounter another black person, what I have discovered is that there is a particular narrative that I don't have. It's a narrative that they have. I don't have it. That narrative problematizes other black people. I don't do that. I don't do it. I don't like it. And even when I experience an, an, an African-American who's doing something I don't like, I, they're just doing something I don't like. I do not racialize the problem the way the, the other African-Americans in these predominant white spaces do. And they'll say something like, you know, it just had to be another black person, right? You know, black people, that is such a deficit-based orientation. And I don't get down with it. Not only do I not get down with it, I am now studied on why that happens. I know the, and I know how to disrupt that in a conversation. And when the moment I disrupt it, it becomes problematized. So do you see the conundrum? I'm in these predominantly white spaces. But because of how I've been raised, I'm not here trying to vilify other black people. I'm not going to do that. And up until the last few months, I have never been accused of pri- uh, of of privileging white people over blacks. I've never been accused of that until the last few months. Uh, which was very confusing for me. Very confusing. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you guys on pause because I, I want to make sure I'm not contradicting myself on something. Give me one second. Okay, so I, uh, it only took me about 20 seconds to be on pause. This is what I, what was feeling like a contradiction. So let me explain it to you. So uh, it, it, I have never been accused of privileging white people up until the last few months. And, and that wasn't like a direct accusation, but that's the, that was the, um, underpinnings of what was said. I'll, 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 I'll try to explain that. But this is what I have heard when I challenge, when I talk about church, right? Now it's up until, it's only until recent that I've, I've, been cha- I've challenged church around LGBTQIA issues, but be- even before that, I I I felt like the black church experience that I, the black churches I was going to was just very emotional, and I just didn't I needed more than emotionalism. I love a good church service, and like sometimes I miss that. You know, because I, I, I was born Catholic, and then um, 
my mom left the Catholic Church when I was in ninth grade, and I didn't go with her to the Protestant Church. And then somewhere in my 20s, I started going to um, Pentecostal churches. And the first Pentecostal church I went to was white, predominantly white, just because of the person who took me with her. And then I found my way into a to black um, church, black Pentecostal church services. And those black Pentecostal services were emotionally charged. The white ones too. That white one was was as well. And it was just a lot. And I now know why it was a lot. Now that I understand like being an INTJ, it was just, just a lot. So I was criticizing that. You know, I didn't have the full vocabulary. I didn't understand what was going on. And I went to my aunt, who is now a pastor, but before she was just a minister. And her answer was, you need to go to a white church. She said it to me all the time. You need to go to a white church. What are the the implications to that? What are the implications? That was confusing for me. Until I went to the South. And I started seeing, or, you know, even before I went to the South, it was another, another city outside of my hometown. And I started seeing black church that wasn't as emotionally charged. It was more probably more intellectual service. So the message that I was getting is that you want something more intellectual. You want something more rational. That's not how black people are. If you want that, you're going to have to go to a white space. That was the message. Well, do you understand how complicated that is for me? Because I am black. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do want to be in communion, communion, community with other black people. And what you're telling me is I can't be. And why? You never, never named it. And I would go to these white services. And I'm like, this is not it. Because I trusted my aunt. I'm like, okay. I would go to these white churches. It wasn't. No. No, I mean, I've, I can go to a white church now, but I'm sort of different. I mean, it's for... In the absence of not being able to find um, in my hometown the social justice agenda, most of the so- churches that have uh, a full social justice agenda, those typically are the white churches in my hometown. My hometown. And then I can go to another city and, and see more diversity when it comes to social justice. It's really fascinating. So, so that... Um, so my sister's friend, I have a couple of friends who were, they were teased. They were black. They were teased for talking white. I never experienced that. Because I don't, I don't believe I have a white dialect, but I do. I'm certain I have a professional dialect. And there is a such, there is, when like, it's not, there's no such thing as talking white. It's talking proper. That's not true. Whites have a dialect. African-American vernacular is not just about black people. Every, there's a vernacular for each group. Oh, my gosh. I, get, I hate when people... Oh, anyway, that's another story. So I never was accused of that the way I've had some black friends to be accused of it. But I have been accused of being a rational thinker and, and, and accused of being a misfit for that. As though... 
black people aren't rational. It's that's ridiculous. I think I'm getting so anyway. So there's that. But the last few months, I was accused of not being not supporting black people. It was the first time I had ever been accused of that. It and it was so unsettling. It was so disoriented. And you guys, I haven't talked about this young lady who led the charge. Um, and she came at me from the, from pretty much from the beginning, she came at me and she, uh, she felt that I didn't like her. She felt I didn't like her. She felt I was going to, you know, she said she's experienced black women doing certain things. She's a black woman. She's experienced black women doing certain things to her in the past. She assumed that I was doing that. And she, and it's been, it's been, it's been a journey with her in the last four months, five months. And I am now saying I'm thankful that I've had that because now I understand the situation. And I don't, I don't have all of it yet, but I have enough of it. From the beginning, she did not embrace my leadership. From the beginning. I have since learned in the last month that she had more of the backseat driver role. There were about five or six people in that organization who were able to drive from the back seat. They had my boss's ear and she couldn't do that with me. I didn't realize that what was was going on. We don't have the same viewpoint. And so we don't have the same viewpoint and she couldn't, she couldn't get in my ear. So how she got in my boss's ear by telling my boss she was wrong. She couldn't do that with me, although she tried. And so it became about me not supporting her because she was black or me questioning that. And the hard part about it is that she has yet to bring anything concrete to the table, but I've heard, but I've heard through her accusations. So instead of her bringing, um, so she, she's accused me of things like, let me give you an example of, She's problematized me left and right. I'm, I'm reactive. I'm rushed. I'm, it's just a, I mean, rude. She called me rude. Oh my gosh. This woman has given me every characterization other than being a child of God. And so when you take that and you, she has not been willing to work with me. Anytime I ask her to do something, She's got a thousand reasons why she can't work with me. How I got to bring somebody else to the table. She doesn't want to be in a room. She doesn't want to have conversations with me one-on-one. She is, she's afraid of me. I'm toxic. That's the second thing. And then I've heard that she's had some, made some comments in some backroom spaces. You take those three things. You take those three things. And that, excuse my language, I'm about to curse, but there's no other word for it. That fucked with my head. It really did. It really did. I couldn't understand it. I could not understand why this was happening. 
and I kept trying to work and work it out. Like clearly we just need to talk clearly. You know what I mean? uh, I'm calling people that know me. Like you think it was just, it's okay. I'm over that. And I think a lot of it is, I just think my leadership style is different from how she would want it. And that, and I'm starting to wonder, no, I really am starting to wonder about this equity conversation that some African Americans have embraced in predominant white spaces. So I have a job that is about equity. The last year I had a job that was about equity, but I enter into equity work differently than other some other African Americans. And remember my upbringing, two things. I was raised with a clear view of blackness around black solidarity, black power. I enter into equity significantly different. And my relationship with leadership, with my experience being in leadership roles and my views about power. I'm not getting ready to perform equity work. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to perform it for the master, if you will. I'm not going to perform it to make other people feel like they're doing equity work when all we're doing is having a a vocabulary exchange. We're going to talk about the words. So this one particular young lady, my mom calls her my problem child. I think I told you guys that. And I I said, I'm not going to call it out. I'm not going to call out racism like that. You can call it out. I'm not going to call out racism. It does nothing for me to call out racist acts. I don't give a shit about it. Excuse my language. I don't care. Here's what I care about. Justice. You call it out and I'm going to create structures and policies so that quote, the racist, quote unquote, can't be racist or their racism won't impact the organization. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put systems in place so it will be protected from racist ideology. That's how I'm going to do anti-racist work. That's how I'm going to do equity work. But if you want to sit around and make this a vocabulary um, experience, a language experience, you do that. I'm not doing that. I'm not mad at you for doing that. I actually think it's helpful. But don't problematize me because I'm not. Now, you take that on the flip side. That was her. That's her issue. She's like, I think you should do both. You do both. You had an opportunity to apply for the position that I'm in. If you had a particular way you wanted it to be done, you should have applied for it. And I've said that. In this organization, I said it was about five or six people who have been leading from the back seat. And what I've said to all of them now If you wanted to drive, you should have put on your big girl underwear on because all of these are women and you should apply for the position to drive it. It's not like they applied and didn't get it. Only one did. She wasn't really a backseat driver. They didn't even apply for the position. And what they told me is, I don't really want the work. You're damn right you don't want the work. Because when you do leadership, you have to take risk. You have to make decisions, and when those decisions don't work, it's on you. 
It is leadership is not for the faint of heart. And I'm okay with you not wanting to do that. But what we're not going to do in here is that you didn't want to apply for the leadership position and you thought you, you thought you were going to backseat drive me as a leader. No, baby. No, no, no. That is very clear. But now you add race on top of that. This is very new territory for me. All right, I'm, I'm going to start bringing closure. Watch this. Last year, my superintendent was black. And in some ways, I believe I'm close. I think I thought I was closer in alignment with him. I don't fully know. But he removed equity from positions. The title equity. He, re- he removed the word equity. People had a fit about it. That didn't bother me. Because for me, it, it it's equity is bigger than a, a vocabulary. So you can do equity work without saying the word. But you've got to put structures and systems in place. So that's where I thought he was going. But he didn't want to put those structures and systems in place. Both of these individuals... And so is it that they don't understand the structures and systems? It's possible. Maybe I understand it because I'm like, oh, maybe I understand it because of my my degrees. Maybe I understand it because of my um, some professional choices I made. And maybe I understand it as an INTJ. But my equity work is going to be about justice, excuse me, structures and systems. Period. And it's, these aren't structures and systems that will favor one group over another. It's about making spaces equitable. And you can do that from the place of implementing policies, procedures, um, divisions, structures. Five, about four years ago, I bumped heads with another black girl. And because she said she didn't want to do equity work. And I, because she wanted me to do something. And I just said, no, that's not equitable. And again, the thing I wanted to do was related to a policy. And she didn't want to get behind that policy. Not because the policy in and of itself was wrong. Because the policy was going to unfavor a group of people who have been favored. It was going to unprivilege a group of people who've been privileged. And she didn't want to get behind that. Okay. But she wanted to talk equity. I said, well, this is, no, I said, this is my equity. She said, um, I'm not doing equity right now. Well, there you go. What am I going to say to that? Now, we've had a conversation in the last um, few months, um, and she talked about having dealing with racial fatigue. And she said, if you know me, anybody who knows me knows that I do uh, racial justice work. I just was tired in that moment. And I get it. And I'm like, if she would have said that, if she would have said that to me, that would have gone up. But she probably didn't know to say it. And so it worked out the way it worked out. Because I understand. I understand it. Like I told the young lady that I work, 
that uh, supervised now, I said, we all have to do this racial justice work in our own way. And this is the article. I found an article that talked about, you hear people saying black people are not a monolith. We're not all the same. What unites us, it's not even a culture. We don't even have the same culture. Even though we like to say black culture, right? There's a lot of overlap. But what unites us is that we all experience, we have a shared political experience due to the melanin in our bodies. That's how we're united. We don't have to think alike. We don't have to have the same values. We don't have to say preferences. We don't, and it's okay. So I was in a meeting about a month, no, a few weeks ago, and I'm the only person of color in that meeting. I hate that expression, but it's true. I was the only person of color in that meeting. And they start talking about what black person is really down for equity or not. I just said, we, this, is, this is not a conversation I'm going to be a part of. I don't think we have the uh, license, if you will, to judge someone if they're equitable or not. And we're sure as hell not going to judge another black person for being equitable or not. Who the hell? How do you even justify that coming from these were three, three women were of the dominant group. They were they were the racial dominant group. How do you say it? Of the racial elite. Coming from that perspective, you're not in a position to evaluate if someone is equitable or not. Not when you at the same time say you're on your journey. And this is the whole inch. This is it. This is, this is it. This is, this is what I had to confront for myself. Because that young lady did a number. I mean, it was, and she said, why are you, put, why are you putting it all on me? Because she drove a lot of that. She drove it. She was the power holder in that space. She's the power holder. She has to own it. But just like she didn't step up to to the plate to take on a leadership role she doesn't want the responsibility she wants to have influence with no burden but nonetheless nonetheless in, in, this is why I said I don't know I, I say I'm not going to do another equity based position I don't know if I can really afford to say that but I sure as hell would like to say I'm not doing another position that is under the umbrella of equity is it because I don't believe in equity? No. But this whole idea of doing equity that ultimately is being defined by the dominant privileged group. It's being defined by the dominant group. And then you put some racialized folk in there to manage it. And my view of equity isn't doesn't thrive in that. So I don't even need to I don't even need to entertain that anymore. Let y'all, that's the world you, that's what you believe. And you play in that sandbox. I'm not playing in that sandbox with you. Because my view of equity is we are not going to degrade anyone that doesn't have access to privilege, to resources. I don't care if they do something wrong. So the young lady that I'm calling my problem child, I don't call her that, my mama calls her that. I'm still going to, I'm going to do my damnedest to protect her. But I will be protecting myself as well. She does not have the right to tear me down. She won't. I'm not going to do that.
So it's just a, it's all fascinating to see how we're all trying to survive in this predominantly, in this organization that's predominantly, and I keep saying predominantly white, but let, this is what I'm really saying. This organization that is being ran by the, domi- the, the dominant group, the racially dominant group runs this organization. And we're all trying to survive in that way, in that organization, the way we know how to do it. And that's not just about race. Because gender is implicated here. It's a lot. You have to read, you have to get the memoir when I write my book. <laughs> It'll all be explained in that memoir. <laughs> um, I mean, I do writing about this now under my dominant name, but I'm going to bring this topic to this community when I write that memoir. So anyway, so that was very hard for me to reconcile, like, what is this barrier? So I know the barrier of not, of being told I don't, I don't really fully fit in because I'm, I think differently. So I didn't get hit with you talk differently. I've gotten hit with you think differently. So you don't really fit in. And you like things that we don't like. I had to come, but this was the first time that now I had somebody trying to tell me that I will, I don't support other people of color. And you don't have a right to do that. And you know what I mean? And it's not true. It's verifiably not true. That's why I said she got in my head. And a friend of mine said, you're letting her gaslight you. He said it. He said, you're letting her gaslight you. You, there's, everybody that knows you as a matter of fact I've lost jobs because I've been a champion of other people of color I've been a champion for the disadvantage but I let her get in my head perfect storm perfect storm I had to process that but anyway what is done is this all of that, when I take all of it together, here's the reconciliation. Being black is a political construct. Just like being white is a political construct. As a matter of fact, being white is more of a political construct than anything. Because if you, eat, if you look at the history of, or the evolution of who's considered white, it's really anybody that's not black. Whiteness is is baked into anti-blackness, blackism, if you will, anti-black racism. That's what it means to be white. Most people don't know that. But as often as I can explain it, I do. White is a political construct. So is black. So is any group, any racial group. It's not a biological phenomenon. None. It's not a biological phenomenon. Race is not. It is a social construct and we know it. And now we can have some shared experiences because of how we are politically treated. And that can make way of some of culture. But as a flat, there's no one black culture. There's no one way to be black. That's insane. That's ridiculous. And 
for people who like to sit on the edge of gatekeeping around blackness, which has been very, that's been painful for me to watch. The very people who have been marginalized and ostracized about race then become the gatekeepers about who's really black, who's really black, who's black enough. That's painful. That's painful. So. Is what it is. Apollo Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed. A lot of times the oppressed will mimic their oppressors. Yes, even those who are championing equity. And I think that is why I allowed that young lady to get in my head because I wanted to check myself. What if, am I doing that? I wanted to double check. I wanted to make sure and be open, be open to being held accountable, being open to growth. I opened myself up for this young lady to give me this feedback when they say, how did you let her give you feedback like that? Because I'm, I'm open for growth. There's another part of it that I do think that trauma of that intergenerational trauma makes me also able to be under the fire like that longer than other people. But I never want, I, I we all, every we all are products of a social world. We're socialized. I know that. I'm not above, above being socialized a particular way. And that means I'm always going to be on the lookout for the ways that I have, I'm mimicking my oppressor. And I won't always be able to call it out of myself. So if somebody else can come along and show me, I'm open for that. And that's what I asked that young lady to do. She wasn't able to do that. She wasn't. She wasn't. And one of the frameworks I'm building at the job is to say, okay, when we are in a position and we're going to call each other out, there needs to be some shared standards, some shared principles that ground our work. Because otherwise this can become... Excuse my language again. It can come a shit show real fast where we're just in our feelings calling somebody out in our feelings and not from a place of rational judgment. And I do not believe that you should call out racism, sexism, heterosexism in the absence of rational thinking. Now, that's my bias as an INTJ. Okay. And this is not to discredit people who feel racism and they're calling it out. But I think we have an obligation to be systematic and rational about this. Otherwise, we will become our oppressors. Now. So my racial reconciliation is I don't have to litigate my blackness for anybody. I don't have to litigate my blackness for anybody and I don't have to litigate justice, my commitment to justice. And I do not have to be ashamed that I like to be in my multicultural spaces. And I like, I like learning and growing from people beyond race. And I have an, both an eye and an appetite to see people as human. I'm not delusional. Racism is a thing, 
and we have inherited it. But I don't have to own it as though it's real. I'm not going to be a gatekeeper around race. I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to let anybody do it to me. You guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about race and there's an intersection of class here, I don't think I made an argument for this. Some of this has going to have to be written out. A lot of the, I'm going to be, um, there are some of these episodes that I'm putting a, a star for myself. You don't see it because I know that it's going to be a pillar in my, in the memoir when I write it. It'll be done in the, that memoir is going to be written in five years. <laughs> It is going to be written. Um, it's definitely going to be written before I'm 60. That's definite. Uh, just have a couple other texts that have to go out. But anyway, this is going to be one of them. This is a conversation I needed to have out loud with you all because you helped me get at this place of truth in my brain. That's very helpful. So whether you agree with me or not, it's not even relevant for me. But even here's a beautiful thing. Hopefully I made you think. So if you had this conversation where, the, you know, where you were talking in alignment with what I'm saying or you were talking in opposition and you think that this would be helpful to take that my journey and share it, please do. If my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Twitter, you're an IDOM one. Facebook and YouTube, you're an IDOM. Let me give you your assignment. I will say, let me, before I give you this, because as soon as I put put you on pause, I checked in with myself, like, where are you at? And I said I was 90% resolved. I think the truth is 85%. Because I still have to contend with how I let that young lady get in my head like that. And I think some of that is related to trauma. I really do. She's a black woman. And I have a deep love for black women. And I I gave her the position of being right. It was hard. I can feel it. I I feel the need to cry right now. It was hard for me to see that woman as wrong. Even though she was hurting me. That's my mother. And I had to, oh my gosh, I made the mistake of telling this girl that she had the four, the four letters for the Myers Briggs as my mom. And I had no idea that I was intuitively picking up something. So apparently she doesn't have those four letters. It doesn't matter. I was intuitively, intuitively picking up something when I, when I made that statement that those words didn't represent didn't represent what I was intuiting but they were the result of what I was intuiting and um, and I think you couple that me being raised as to be proud to be black and you being raised by a woman who maybe because of her own Intergenerational trauma was harmful. And she was my mom. And that's not an easy thing to reconcile. This young lady was the perfect 
perfect channel to bring that shit to me. Because I, if it would have been a white man, a black man, a white woman, even a Latina woman, Latina, it would not, it would not have gotten to me. That was only going to be able to, that harm could have only gotten to me by way of a black woman. And what she's accusing me of is making shit up about her. That's okay. There's enough evidence now. There's enough evidence of her being harmful. Um, but I will have that written down. And I think, I think, and here's in her, to her, in her defense, this is what I think was happening. She doesn't agree with my leadership style and she doesn't have to. And she was functioning a particular way because of the previous leaders allowed her to. And I didn't allow her. So then she started responding to me. And then I started responding to that. And then when she was responding in a way that was harmful, I, it just took me a minute to see it. I could feel it, but I couldn't name it. And I just, and I think we have different views about what equity work is. Different views and different commitments. Because there's no way in hell, there's no way in hell for her to, if, there's no way in hell I would have said the things to her, a black uh, leader that she has said to me. None. But anyway, that's the part I still have to work on. That's some trauma stuff that I still got to work on. That's got nothing to do with, that's complicated by race. I shouldn't say it's got nothing to do with race. It's complicated by race. Because the trauma is The trauma came through a black woman. I'm talking about my trauma coming up. The things that my mom said to me. And she loves me and I love my mother. But it's a different kind of love. It is a different kind of love. I'm no longer contesting if it's love or not. It is a different kind. It's a particular kind of love. And so that's something I still have to work on. And how does that influence me with black women? I've never had this issue with black women in this way, with a black woman in this way. But how do you both support somebody because they're black and saying, hey, I'm not going to let you hurt me because you're black. Just because you're black. I'm not going to allow that. That's some complicated shit right there, y'all. It's complicated. It's all get out. So I still have some work to do, but I feel a lot better about it. And I'll probably have to come back and do a, more on this. But this was the start. You guys have heard me initiate certain topics, and then I come back, I get clearer. So this is just the start of this. I'll talk about this more. But let's get back to you and give you your assignment. Is there anything that you've struggled with that makes no sense? Like, it makes no sense why that would be a struggle for you. mix and yet you keep struggling with it and you can't figure out why that's all I have I'd be very curious it'd be curious to find out what's underneath that because I frame this around racial reconciliation which it is but what's what's in this is also trauma 
that's really the heart of that's the that's what it is. And when you have experienced harm at the hands of somebody, and you were raised to val- uh, validate a thing, I was raised to validate blackness, black womanhood as a thing, and then the harm that's coming by way of that thing. And it's really, it's a complication. So anyway, um, you tell me about, you don't tell me, that's what your assignment is, to think through something you've struggled with and you just have not been able to, you don't understand it. You don't, you just don't understand what, what the struggle is. More than likely, it's about something more than what you understand it to be. This is the longest reflection I've had to date, you guys. But this is, this is, this was a tough one. And it's the one I'll come back to. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.